Alright, find, find with me, if you will, Mark chapter 4. And we're going to be in uh, just a single verse, actually five words of Mark chapter 4. Verse 14, the sower sows the Word. That's the whole thing. The sower sows the Word. Let's pray. Father, I love and adore You. I thank You, Father God, for this. And I pray, God, that it is prepared rightly, Father, and that I can preach it well. I pray, Father God, that um, just drive from me, Father God, the source of so much of a problem in all of our lives, but especially mine, Father God, my pride and my arrogance, my stubbornness and my intransigence, Father God, my refusal to listen to others, Father God, and my just selfishness and self-centeredness. I pray, Father God, that all of that would die on the altar today. As I pray that that in every one of us would die on the altar today, Father. It must be, must be murdered, Father. It must be sacrificed so that we can, uh, we can run with, with real surety, Father God. And with power, this race, God, that you've laid out for us, Father. So please, God, bless us today that we come together and that, that we can study and pray and be led, Father God, to take action today. To take action, Father God, that maybe is, is the hardest that we can because it seems at times so obvious, Lord. Just bless us, Father God, that we can, that today, Lord, we can really become your slaves. That today, Father God, we can truly become your servants, God, for life. In the name of Christ, I pray, Lord. Amen. Look, I understand that the verse I'm starting with, uh, the sower sows the word, doesn't seem like it matches with the title. And for a long time in my ministry, I never really cared what title said until I started to teach literature again. I realized that people read the title and kind of make up their mind about what the sermon's going to be about. So titles matter more maybe than they should, but that's just the nature of people. So titles do matter. But I, what I want to say is, is that I think it's exactly the point of this meeting. The fact that God's brought us together in the midst of all this sickness, and there's so many of us still able to be here, that, um, that this is why we need to, this is what we need to talk about. Now, countless times throughout our experiences in the church, we have seen men and women whose hearts were set aflame by the gospel. I mean, people that we saw just maybe we... We had prayed for a long time, or even just to be quite blunt with you, lots of people might have said, hey, look, guys, you know, there's just no way for this guy. There's no way. They're too far gone. As if, I don't even know where that is. They're certainly not theologically sound. But there's too far gone. And see them get saved and baptized and be for a time absolutely on fire with the gospel. And then see that sidetracked or completely derailed by suffering or strife. Do you understand what I mean by that? I mean, they're there and they're active and they're they're working and they're serving. And then one day they're they're just gone. And we don't know what happened to them. We don't know why this turned out that way. Well, we know. We just don't know why they're not more resilient. Or, Or then maybe it happens to us. We felt like we were sailing so smoothly through, the go- through that gospel-inspired um, life. And then one day we hit the rough seas ourselves. So, so in, in light of the idea that the sower sows the word. And I want to say this because I'm not sure I said it exactly this way in the notes. I want to say it this way. And what I mean is this. Is that I can stand here and preach. No matter who hears me. If it's, if it's right here in person or through some electronic means. It doesn't matter. But the fact that I can sit right here. And that I can, um, that I can preach. Is only because 
You love me and pray for me and support me. Preaching is a collaborative effort, not just between pastor, humbly between pastor and the Holy Spirit who inspires and gives discernment and gives power, but is a collaborative effort between the pastor and the Holy Spirit who is ultimately the God of this sermon. Between his power and his will and his might through preaching and your support. We preach one sermon that is all of us together. Together. I preach it prayerfully. You go out and live it. People hear it and they look at you and they see the thumbprints of what God does beginning with sermons that, that, that cascades out throughout, throughout our lives. I'm absolutely no good as a preacher. Worthless as a preacher of the gospel if you can't successfully go out and live it. Not just my life, not just my life, because my life, if my life doesn't contradict but yours does, we are still in the same pickle, aren't we? So, so the congregation preached too is just as vital as, as the man who's called to preach. Just as vital. You are the evidence, you are the, the proof, the veracity of what's preached in this church. So when we see people go astray, we're troubled and we want to talk about that for just a little bit. Look, people that we've come to count upon valued brothers and sisters in the Lord who were once our most beloved and valued partners. As Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians 3, 9 saying, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Well, these people are truly the church. Family members who are actively forming the backbone of the church must remain faithful or they leave a lasting impression of absence upon the entire psyche of the body of Christ. So when we get these people just so powerfully moved by the gospel, we've got to, man, we've got to keep them powerfully moved by the gospel. We've got to keep them. Now, there's, there's a... a, there's a a responsibility on you today. And that you're here and you're, you're part of this. Stay. Stoke those fires. Please. Don't faint away. Don't flake off. But stay faithful. Because people are depending on you. Every one of you. When you can come in the midst of sickness, you inspire. When you can come in the midst of problems, you inspire. When you fall off or flee, you inspire in another way. So there's a responsibility for all of us. For all of us. We need faithfulness in the body of Christ. And true biblical faithfulness is defined by the fidelity despite the conditions of life. Being faithful even when your world is falling apart. Non-circumstantial Christianity. <clears throat> it's not defined by fair weather strength coupled with foul climate inspired infidelity. Which means you can be here when it's good and it's okay to be out when it's bad. It's okay to be out when you're struggling. It's okay to not be faithful because you're having a hard time. We need you more when you're suffering 
to when everything's perfect. We need your strength in times of of terror in your life. Therefore, the focal passage establishes for us the one unchanging notion that we have to deal with today. That we are sowers of the word. And sowers sow the word. As the people of Christ call to be his hands and feet, his witness, his witnesses to the entire world to demonstrate his heart and his integrity and to encourage each other in anticipation of the return of our king of kings. Our gospel witness can never be hampered or circumstantial. It must be free and never enslaved to even the most noble of causes aside from the truth of Jesus. There's another thing that infects the church, folks, is that we have a lot of loyalties. We have a lot of loyalties. That we must have one unchanging, indelible loyalty. And that is to Christ Jesus. And everything else distracts. Now, as I I worked through this, I thought thought this is an example. I don't want to hurt anybody, but I'm just, we're kind of past it now. But I just realized the depth of it. I remember, Brother Joe, I remember when we were there with all those little girls in softball. And some of them were so, man, they were so into that, Brother Joe. They were so, that was their world. That's all they cared about. And I kept sitting around them, and I just cared so much about them, loved them so deeply. And I kept thinking, and in fact, some of them even talked to me about the thing. One of the things I always said was, you know, everybody takes the last pitch one of these days. I don't care if you're Jenny Finch, the best softball player to ever play. Or Cat Osterman, the second best you ever play. Guess what happened? One day they threw their last competitive pitch and it was over. And they had to find a way to live outside the lines. I remember talking to a friend once about that. We took a long trip and we had a long time to talk. And what he said was he said that for his child, things always made sense inside the lines and they never made sense outside the lines. If they could have played a game that lasted forever... They would have been happy. But one of these days you have to live with yourself. See, I think that's the, there's, there's the, the hang-up on divided loyalties. Is that Christianity is forever. And everything else we invite into our life as a loyalty, as something to which we, we strive, is something that's always temporary in its notion. If it's your job, what are you going to do when you retire? If you live for your job, what do you do when there's no more? If you live for your kids, what do you do when they're grown? If you live for your marriage, what do you do when you're a widow or a widower? See, there's nothing, even good things, even some pure things, can be terrible distractions, can't they? Terrible distractions. There's only one loyalty, and that's to Christ. must be free and never enslaved even the most noble of causes aside from the truth of Jesus we sow the word that is what makes us Christians not a moment or a decision but a lifetime commitment to the gospel of Christ Jesus to which all of us owe our eternal destiny in the end we're defined as Christians because the gospel is the one message the one song for us for all of life for all of life 
Look, the call today is simple and concise and for the entire church and not just the pulpit. This is for everybody. We are all sowers of the word. Word and deed, everything pushing forward the truth of the gospel. Men and women saved from the fires of perdition by the words of your mouth and the deeds of your life. Showing the gospel. Working it out for a lost world to see. The demonstration of faith. Over and over and over again. The sermon that never ends is the life of the believer. People watching it. Watching you from afar and talking to you up close. It's best expressed by Paul in 2 Timothy 4.2 which says preach the word. It's for a preacher, Timothy, there's no doubt. But it's for all of us. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Be ready when your heart is in it. And be ready when your heart is not. I can promise you that. It's probably shown. But there have been times in the, in the dozen years that I've been blessed to be the pastor of this church when I just didn't have it in me to climb into this pulpit. I was too sick and too weary. Wasn't there. The fire wasn't there. And you know what I had to do? Out of season, I had to climb into this pulpit. I could just hold up my hands or wave a white flag and say, I can't do this anymore. I had to do it. The gospel demands. You know what? The gospel in your life right now demands. You can't, don't get a day off from being a believer in Christ Jesus. You don't get a bad season. I'm just not up to it today. Get up to it. Because Jesus Christ did not look at the cross and say, look, I'm not up to this today. He climbed the hill. And he presented his hands. And he took the blows. That's our model. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Do your job. Church, we have to do our jobs. Look, the message given to Timothy resonates throughout the church age and congregations of every generation. We've all got something that's pulling us away. We've all got something we won't surrender. We've all got some anchor, some weight that drags down our faith. All of us do. Look, we're not called to surrender to the world, but to embrace and to conform our lives to the truth of John 16, 33, which says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Every single solitary thing that can derail our faith, that can decimate our faith, has been overcome by Jesus already. They've all been made a footstool. He owns death. Death. Fears nothing. Nothing is outside of His power. Not even the very imprisonment of your body is outside the power of God. No matter the challenge, whether it be financial ruin or desperation of sickness, familial disappointment, the sting of lack or want, or shortcomings in personality or in intelligence that seem binding and crippling. I can't tell you. That's, that's one of the first excuses offered in the Bible, isn't it? Moses, I can't, I'm not a good speaker. Boy, he talked a lot for somebody who wasn't a good speaker. 
He wrote a lot for somebody who wasn't a good speaker. You know why? Because God does not care about your limitations. He doesn't care about mine. He doesn't care how old you are. He's infinitely old. And he raised Caleb up and Joshua up so that they were their, their energy wasn't even diminished a bit at 85. He was just as strong at 85 as he was 40 years before. God does not care about our limitations. He laughs at our limitations. Christ has overcome all. All of this for His eternal glory and our temporal good. You are no more defined by your weaknesses than you are by the skills Christ blessed you with by nature. That's always been the thing that just so, so shocked me in the ministry. Because there were these guys out there that were pretty. And they could sing. And they could play. And they could preach. And they could remember a thousand verses. And they could put all that stuff together. And they could make up a sermon sitting on the front pew. And I would labor for hours and hours and hours just trying to come up with two sentences that match. And they could just do it without even trying hard, man. They had so much talent, so many skills. I'm going to tell you, their talent and skills are worthless for the gospel. Worthless. God will take a fool and slay the hearts of thousands while these men priss and preen on television and accomplish nothing. Nothing. God is, you're, we are no more defined by what we can't do than you are defined by those things that you're great at. Because what we're great at is filthy lucre in comparison to the power of the cross. It does nothing. The Savior has died to set you free from the limitations of your birth. The power of the cross enabled or enables your salvation at this moment. Understand what I'm saying? For those who are born again, those who are not born again, the power of the cross is the power of salvation. To save you from everything. Paul taught it in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The very gospel says, by the power of God expressed through the death of the only begotten Son, you are different or you can be different. That's right. You can be made so different by the power of what God does. To the cross today, you are the beloved, redeemed, justified, embraced, and called of God. You're beckoned to, died for, atoned for from the consequences of sin and shame. And loved with everlasting love by Christ Jesus. Look, no matter the challenges of hardships, your eternal definition never wavers for an instant. When you are born again and you truly belong to Christ Jesus, it does not matter what happens in your life. It will not change that eternal truth. It will not change it at all. You will always be whom Jesus died to make you. Embrace your blood-bought future in the Savior's kingdom and never be delayed or hindered by problems or issues. Look, there's a process we're going to speak of today which, by which our church and those who may hear and surrender to the gospel today may move forward accepting the ill news of life and overcoming, overcoming the hindrances of an ill-timed fate of life. 
That's right. Some of us have had really easy lives and others of us have just struggled so much. And God is the Lord of both lives. He's going to, we're, going to, we're going to speak today about how to overcome all those challenges and all those problems and all those hardships, all those uh, hardships and all that heartache. All of it. This is all displayed within the teachings of Scripture which primarily speak about being brought low. In, in the Greek, it's, uh, it's tapi nuo, which means to be humbled, brought low, or humiliated. And when I saw that, I was just looking up definitions. All I'm doing is not anything complicated. And I saw that last word there, and, and my heart was broken. Because there's lots of us in this room right here know what, knows, who know what it's like to suffer through humiliation. Don't we? To be utterly humiliated. We say we're brought low, but you're not really brought low to your cut low. You're not really brought low to you're afraid to go to Walmart anymore because of who you might see. To you're afraid of what will be whispered about you behind your back. If there's anything as an adult that I've learned is the hardest thing in the world to deal with is humiliation. Prayerfully, an understanding resonates in the mind and heart of all who are listening because those three issues are the primary need for this sermon. What do we do when we're humbled or humiliated? When at one time we have everything and now we have nothing. First, we must proceed under the auspices of a particular truth. That is that Christ Jesus allows in His will extremely excruciating circumstances to invade the lives of His people. You weren't broken or destroyed or decimated or humiliated because of the action of anyone other than the very divine will of God that protects you. God is not for you sometimes and against you other times. When you suffer, God's just as much for you. Just as much. No random chance or unintelligent design governs us, but Christ truly fulfills Romans 8.28 in us as it teaches. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Your disappointments and disparagement are not pointless, but pregnant with purpose from the Lord for eternal glory and personal good. Everything that happens to you has a divine reason. Chance does not govern us at all, but only the purposes of God. All things, especially the terrible and humiliating matters of life, are enslaved to God for our collective enrichment. You were humiliated to grow. I was humiliated to grow. For good and not for bad. If we cannot believe this today, then nothing that I say matters in the least. 
What's being preached and must be believed is, is that God's sovereignty is so rich and complex that sickness is its slave. Poverty its bricks and prayers its mortar in building a glorious life for all of us. Now how must we understand the glories of the kingdom through being brought so low for the glory of God? First, the nature of man is to be prideful and haughty throughout life. And the will of God is that such arrogance be burned from us in the forge of humiliation and defeat. Why do bad things happen to us? Because we're as prideful as we can be. And there's not a single one of us in this room who does not struggle with pride. God preaches against it and preaches against it and preaches against it because it is how people are. Our Lord teaches us in Isaiah 2.17 saying, And the haughtiness of man must be, the haughtiness of man shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. God has declared war on our haughtiness. On the exaltation of our Lord can and must endure among His people. He's got to break our pride so that He is exalted. Because if he doesn't watch out, we'll worship ourselves. We'll put men up above us and worship them. We'll worship our children, our jobs, our recreation. We'll worship everything in the world we can lay our hands on. And so he breaks us of pride so we'll look heavenward. He makes us so stinking tiny so that God is so mighty. It's the perspective God desires from us. The enemy within us, pride, is stronger than the external enemy to to be punished in the final days, the devil. Our rotting and decimating pride with the undoing of everything that God works in our midst. My pride and yours will destroy what God does here. Only His power can separate us from the depths of sin and shame and self-interest and turn our hearts by discipline back to the glory of the Lord. Only God can do that. Two, by surrendering hearts and minds to the long, effective sermon of a hard life, men and women submit themselves to the righteousness of a holy Lord. Life is long and hard, so we're submitted to Him and not to us. The prophet teaches in Isaiah 5, 15 through 16, Man is humbled and each is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Look, throughout our lives, the Lord will wage a ferocious campaign against our stubbornness, pride, and unwillingness to surrender everything in our lives to his ultimate truth. Christ died to free us from the pain of sin, And the bondage of the will. That's right. I didn't know that was going to happen. For so much of my life. I was kind of easy going with a lot of things. And I would follow. If you acted tough enough, I'd follow you. As I've gotten older. I don't want to do things my way less. I want to do things my way more. I started to believe that I know better than a lot of people. How can I submit that to God? Because I don't care how old you are or how experienced you are. He always knows better. And unless you agree with Him, you're wrong. Unless I agree with Him, I'm wrong. It's not about getting old enough to have your way in things. 
And I tell you what, that pervades the church, doesn't it? We think when we get old enough, we get to run things. I never get old enough to have my way. God's way is always what matters. And if I'm in line with His, then I'm right and I'm on sure ground. If I'm not, I'm on shifting sand. It's being washed out from under me. Like it or not, our free will as a people is enslaved to our greed and indulgence. Yet the heart of me getting my way is just the fact that I'm greedy and I'm indulgent toward myself and others. Only by dying to our own way and agreeing to live for the glory of God and not ourselves can men or women hope to glorify the one who deserves glory or declare the one whose righteousness saves the world. Only by dying to ourselves and dying to our way can we really do this. Three, humility is a byproduct of salvation. No man or woman who's unable or unwilling to give his or her life completely to Christ Jesus has surety of redemption, justification, and biblical atonement. Should we panic a little if we're prideful and not humble? Yes, we should. Yes, we should. Humility is the work, the ongoing work of Christ in your life and in my life. So when you're around believers who are burning up with their own pride, you rightly have doubts. You rightly have fears. Humility is His work. God clearly within the teaching of His Word outlines His hatred for the, of the pride which corrupts His creation. Our Lord teaches us in 2 Samuel twenty two twenty eight. You save a humble people. But your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. Humility is the earthly prize of the heavenly kingdom for men and women. Christ will use every resource to convince His church to abandon their self-worth, self-image, and self-governance in favor of a life completely given over to the will and purposes of God. He wages war against the pride which is left in us. And if it takes cancer, poverty, marital destruction, or even incarceration, He will win the campaign for our humility. Understand this much. As much as we were once the enemy of God, and He waged war against our false peace, now that we are the friend of God, now that we are the child of God, called to a beloved status with Him, understand, He still absolutely wages war against our humility. In exactly the same way that a parent wages war against the disobedience of their child. Wages war. He will win the campaign for our humility. The ruthless and beautiful love of God will win this victory over my pride and yours. So that we can be successfully used by the Lord. He's going to win this. I'm thankful that he's hard. Because he needs to win. Four, finally, being brought low is a learned thing which, take, which will take a lifetime in Christ Jesus to master. He's going to keep on bringing us low our entire lives. Paul teaches us this in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. How did Paul become content in every situation? He learned how. He learned how. He didn't start off young being able to do this. And even as he gets older, he's still learning how. 
In verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul teaches us that there's a secret to be learned in the sufferings and disappointments of life. Surrender your life today to learning this secret. To embracing suffering daily for the purposes of God that bring it to your door. Never will we promise uneventful or relaxing lives. And we must not long for them. The fact that we can't have so much strife and so little peace is so that we can truly do all things through the One, the Son, who gives us strength to meet every need. Our God today, through you believer, wants to fulfill Philippians 4.13. He wants to give you strength to meet every challenge. But now this strength is opposite your pride and it's opposite your will and it will destroy your way. I must have humility instead of pride. His will instead of my will. And His way instead of my way. Let's stand together and pray.